0: Well, again, welcome to Ruf, y'all. Um, I know it is that time of the semester where you're cramming everything in before spring break, and um, what well, it's been—it's been three three weeks since I actually preached at Ruf because uh, two weeks ago, um, snowmageddon 2.0 forced us out. So. I don't know about you, but this semester has been really shaky for me, and I know that we, haven't, we don't really have any cohesion as far as going through the book of Ephesians together because every time we come to it, we don't have RUF the next week. So, Lord willing, we'll have two weeks in a row and then spring break. Uh, but I'm promising you, after spring break, we're pedaling to the metal, and we're going we're to kill it, I promise. Um, it's going to be awesome. But I'm actually, I'm staying on it. Last time we missed RUF because of ice, I skipped the passage I was going to preach. But tonight, this is such a big one, uh, we're going to stay on it. It's the latter half of Ephesians 2, uh, starting in verse 11. Um, We've been going, the title of our series this semester is The Walking Dead. Uh, we saw that three weeks ago that Paul said that uh, before Christ, apart from Christ, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were the walking dead without Christ. Um, and Paul has been going on and on, and he does as he does through the first three chapters of this book, talking about the magnificence, um, the cosmic scale at which Christ has come to restore that which was lost. Um, And last time, he talked about it in terms of our individual spiritual condition, that we were dead, but in Christ we are made alive. Tonight, he talks about something more, uh, having more to do, or less to do with us as individuals, more to do with us as a people, as the people of God. Um, that's, that's kind of the angle that he's going to come at from tonight. So if you would, uh, we're going to look at this passage and hear about something that comes out of a Miley Cyrus song as the title goes. Um, it'll tie in. Last time I put a Miley Cyrus quote in the bulletin, uh, I didn't mention it and people were really upset because I just left it in the bulletin. I'll mention it tonight. Maybe. Um, we'll see. So if you would read with me this passage, um, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by the hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For though, uh, for through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So one of the uh, enduring images of the Cold War, which none of us, maybe you know more about it than I do, but um, it it was in my lifetime, but I was a young one, and so I didn't really know what was going on, the end of the Cold War at least. Um, But one of the enduring images of the Cold War was the Berlin Wall. Uh, right, that separated east and west Germany and um, it's kind of this, this symbol of what lied east uh, of the wall. Uh, namely, um, people still stuck um, in communism and all uh, the consequences and effects of it throughout the years. But one of the enduring images of the, the finality of the end of the Cold War was that same wall being torn apart. Um, And one of the enduring quotes of Reagan's, uh, Ronald Reagan's legacy is his quote, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, right? Tear down this wall, stop this separation. It was kind of symbolic at that point, but it was something that packed such significance that it needed to happen to show the world um, that this wall, this wall, these dregs of communism have been done away with. In, In Ephesians here, up to this point, Paul has been laying out for us this information about a God who has a cosmic goal. His cosmic goal is a cosmic goal to deal with cosmic brokenness. Fragmentation and brokenness on a cosmic scale of which we are well apart. We are living in the midst of it uh, due to sin uh, coming into the world. And the goal is to take all of that brokenness, take all of that fragmentation and bring it all together into a unity. Under Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is going on and on about up until this point. In the beginning of chapter 2, we saw that that fragmentation um, affected our individual lost condition. That we were dead apart from Christ. We could do nothing of God. We could not do good. We could not turn to God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but in Christ, God has made us alive. And he goes on to say there in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It is the gift of God. Tonight, as Paul transitions, and something that he's kind of expound the rest of the book, is this fragmentation can be seen in our relationships. That alienation, being separated, being cut off from God and from each other, is a defining fundamental aspect of our condition. Okay? That apart from God and apart from Christ, we are alienated. Alienated from the maker uh, that we were made for and alienated from each other. So God in Christ has come to deal with our alienation. That's what Paul wants to get across this morning. Uh, or <laughs> this morning. Tonight. Um Not a salvation. It's not a salvation of a bunch of individuals. It's rather, it's a cosmic goal to form them into a body. A new humanity is what he calls it. He goes so far as to call it a new humanity. So I want to look at it in three things. I'm just kind of using Paul's words here. Verses 11 and 12. I want to look at uh, how he talks about at one time. Verses 13 through 18. He says, but now... In verses 19 through 22, he says, so then. So that's how I want to look at it. So first, at at one time. He says, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. C.S. Lewis gave a lecture uh, to a bunch of young professionals, or about to be young professionals. um, And it's been kind of um, immortalized in this article or, or essay called, The Inner Ring. And this is, um, in, in in this talk that he gave these people, he opened this talk to these young men by saying that all of us in society, that when we look around each other, we look at the groups of people we're in, all of us have this insatiable fear or at least awareness of being on the outside. That no matter where we are, we have this uncomfortable feeling that there's a ring and somehow we're on the outside of it. And this is how he puts it. He says, I believe... In all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. I think, Sue, I think Lewis is, is dead on to something, and I think he's dead on to something that Paul talks about. Our fundamental condition is one of being alienated. We all Uh, experience this and deal with this in one way or another. And once again, this week, Paul wants us to remember something. Last week, he wants us to remember we were dead. This week, he wants us to remember that apart from God, we are separated, we are alienated, okay? he talks about, in verses 11 and 12, there are all these ways that we were outside. And he talks about us Gentiles, right? Um, So he's talking about those of us that are ethnically not Jews. And I'm going to just kind of run through this real quick. He says, we were of the, the uncircumcision. It's in quotes in my Bible. We were of the uncircumcision. Basically saying, you weren't Jewish that's the point okay so it's kind of understanding at the outset kind of the jew gentile distinction in paul's day it would be akin to the black and white distinction in the civil rights era south okay you're talking about a deep rift you're talking about hurt feelings you're thought of, you're talking about back and forth um contempt okay um other ways to think about maybe if you're familiar with the Sunnah-Shia divide in the Muslim world or if you're thinking about the Protestant-Catholic divide in Ireland Okay, there's ample examples throughout the world throughout history of divides like this Um, for Jews to call the Gentiles the uncircumcision, that really doesn't do anything to us, we don't care, but that was a dirty word, Okay, that would be like using the n-word I guess Um, it was to be one of those people one of those people, right? He says, he goes on, he says, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, okay? Israel, the nation, a people, specially called of God, given the law and the ordinances. uh, They're given a special land. Uh, But from the beginning, they were called first in one man, Abraham. Okay, from the beginning, God told Abraham, through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. You see, the tragedy of the Old Testament is that the Jews forgot this. And they actually began uh, to take uh, privilege as favoritism. Um, and they um, they began, began to hold people that not like them in contempt. If you look at v- verse 14, this isn't in the first two verses, but verse 14, Paul talks about a dividing wall of hostility, how Jesus has torn this down. Uh, Paul very likely, very possibly is talking about a real wall that existed in the temple at Jerusalem. In the temple, um, the temple is kind of like it was like it was constructed in concentric circles. There were there were different levels as you went in, and the outermost wall, um, anybody could come into the area, the courtyard or whatever of the outermost wall, and pray, offer prayers up to God or whatever. But only Jews could go further in, and there was actually a sign on this wall that said, "Whoever went any further only had themselves to blame for their inevitable death." Actually, have Paul in Acts is almost put to death when he brings, of all coincidentally, an Ephesian man into the temple, um, and they think that he's brought a Gentile into the temple, and so they almost kill uh, both of them, but they're wrong. So, Summing all that up. In the biblical picture, to be a Gentile is to be everything that Paul says here. It's to be separated. Separated from God. Literally by this picture uh, or envisioned in this wall. By laws and by ordinances that Israel had but nobody else had. It's to be strangers. Okay? Um, stranger danger, right? You grow up, you know, we teach our kids don't talk to strangers. Um, the stranger feeling is no, more, no better felt for me than when I'm... I hate being in foreign countries. I've been to foreign countries, but I'm I'm always uneasy because I feel like I don't belong, right? I just feel that any time somebody could take me and do something to me and no one would know and no one would care. And that scares me, right? Um, I have a fear of being in other countries. I don't know. Um, I probably have a fear in being out of the South. I don't know. Um, Whether I eat sweet tea and cornbread. Uh, No. I feel like a stranger. I feel uneasy because I know I don't belong, right? We were that. We're alienated. We're completely on an island cut off from everything else. So, what we once were, when we were not of the people of God, instead of being part of a unity, a harmony that we were created to be in with God and with each other, instead of being a part of a oneness that God created us to be in, we were merely ones. And not just ones, but to the Jews, those ones. Those ones. People And this, this idea of alienation, I don't think this is something I need to even spend time trying to convince you of. We're all too aware of what Lewis talks about, right? That quote I read from Lewis. This desire to be in. doesn't matter what kind of group of people you're in. If you're in the group for the first time or if you're in the group uh, for the umpteenth time, you have this desire to feel in, right? And you have the fear of being on the out. This is why we hate inside jokes, right? When you bring an inside joke up that I don't know, I hate you. Right, Because I'm not on the inside of the joke, um, unless it's about me, and then I don't want to be on the inside. But alienation, this thing that's a natural part of our condition, the first thing to see with this, there's two things I, just, I, wanna, I want you to think about, um, about this truth. The first thing to see is this, we, as fallen people, sinful people, alienated people, we are prone to build walls. Meaning we are prone, we are, it's our natural condition to raise walls, to raise barriers with other people, to force people out, to make people feel on the outside, to protect ourselves in some way so that we can be in. That human history is built on the building of walls. Whether it be by race, by color, by caste, by tribe, by class, you name it, history is littered with humanity building walls. Our relationships, whenever there is a plurality of persons, you can guarantee that there are walls in that room. It's what we do to each other. We weren't made to do that to each other, but that's what we do to each other. Recently, um, I was made aware of the phenomenon uh, yik-yak, right? Uh, I don't know how many of y'all know this phenomenon. Yes, I do stalk you on social media. No, um... But so I, I checked it out. You know, it's this anonymous Twitter, right? It's a Twitter that you can see what people around you are posting um, and people are posting anonymously. I'm always scared to death of anonymous things. So I always feel like my name is going to come up in bright light somewhere else that I don't know about. Uh, so I stay away. But, you know, as awful as the things that happen to be said there. If you think about it, is anything new happening on that app that's not been done before? It's really just the same old stuff with a new medium, is it not? It's just a digital bathroom wall, um, which I once heard somebody call Twitter the same thing, which I agree with. Um, Is anything different happening on something like Yik Yak than what happens at the lunch table with you and your friends when so-and-so is not there? What are the things coming out of your mouth, your heart, about other people? Chances are, At least once a week, if not once a day, it's a wall. We're building walls. We're keeping people out. And we take pride in doing it. But the second thing we need to see is this. Outside of Christ, the Bible says, outside of Christ, outside of fellowship with God, the Bible says that we are fundamentally lonely persons. Think about this. We are outside of Christ, outside the body. We are fundamentally lonely persons. This doesn't mean you don't have friends. This doesn't mean you won't have friends. Um, you know, there's that country song. There's a couple of different guys that have a version of this line in their country song uh, as I Googled it today. But I knew I had heard it somewhere. You all ever heard that country song, you know, here's to the nights we won't remember and the friends we won't forget? Um, yeah, you. sure, you can have fun with that. As much as you want. And you can surround yourself with whatever you want to surround yourself. But as, uh, as Les Newsom said when he was talking about this, he said, the reality of all of our lives apart from Christ is that the base note of our hearts is one of complete loneliness. We all fear being alone, right? That movie Castaway, y'all remember this movie, Tom Hanks? Um, you remember, once, once he, on the island, once he, once he realizes like he's going to be in it for the long haul, um, something kind of comes, the loneliness starts to get to him, right? And one day in frustration with a bleeding hand, he picks up the volleyball and throws it. But then he sees what he, what basically is a face and he comforts himself for like four years with a volleyball with a blood handprint face on it. And like the saddest part of the freaking movie is when the ball floats away in the water, right? It's like the saddest part of the movie is like, Wilson! it's a volleyball and it breaks your heart. And there he is in his hotel room, right? Um, his hotel room and he's sleeping on the floor, can't even sleep in a bed. And what's up on the mantel but a brand new Wilson, right? The base note of our heart is that of complete loneliness. For some of you freshmen, this has been all too stark of a reality, right? You come to college and there's so many people and you can surround yourself with so many people. But you know at times this year you've never felt more lonely. Even though there's, what, 800 more of you going through the exact same things? Upperclassmen, some of you, this feeling has never gone away. Why is it that we get stuck on things like, why does nobody like me? Why do I get stuck on things like, I just don't have any real friends? Why do we get hung up on those things? Why are those the things that shackle us, shackle our worry and our fears and our insecurity? Could it be? It's because what you're dealing with is the ultimate alienation that Paul is talking about here. And it's actually that ultimate alienation from your maker and who he made you to be. It's that alienation which is waging war on your soul. Miley, beloved Miley, all I wanted was to break your walls, and all you did was "re me. So I had to do that for effect. Why is it that there's so much truth in that song? And she had to ruin it with her video, but that's, not, that's another sermon. Um, um, why is it that we throw ourselves at relationships? And it doesn't just have to be romantic ones. Why do we throw ourselves at relationships like that? This desperate hope that there is someone, anyone, that I can have a relationship with where there will be no walls. We all want that. We do, and so we cast ourselves hopelessly on them, usually being burned as we're betrayed or disappointed in what those people bring to the table. The flip side of it is this, though, just to wrap this part up. There are people around you every day that are dying on the inside from loneliness and alienation. It could be people you eat lunch with every day. And the question is, is what are you going to do about it? What answer would you give? Where would you lead them? How would you comfort them? What are we going to do about it? Because we are prone to building walls. We're prone to alienating other people. And we're prone to alienating ourselves. What are we going to do? Well, there's good news. Go to number two there. Verses 13 through 18. Paul gives us a but now. Uh, In the first part of chapter 2, he said, um, but God. And now he gets a repeat. He says, but now. Okay? He's saying this fragmentation, this brokenness, this deep-seated loneliness and alienation. In Christ, it is no longer the case. In Christ, it's no longer the case. How? How can that be or why? It has everything to do with Jesus and the cross. That's it. It has everything to do with Jesus and the cross. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay? So Paul is not talking about a universal reconciliation. You've got to get that. Paul is not talking about the fact that we can all just hold hands and and feel like everything's okay. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, though, in Jesus and by His blood very specifically... This alienation has been dealt with. Those who are far off have been brought near. And they are brought near by a personal, vital union with Jesus Christ and what he did. Okay? Two things again here on this one. First, Jesus did something on the cross. Verse 14, he says that destroyed the walls of hostility. Verse 16, it says he killed the hostility. Okay? The gospel... The good news, what Jesus did, that is the wrecking ball to the walls of our alienation. Thank you, Miley. That is the wrecking ball. The gospel, what Jesus did, the cross, that is the wrecking ball to the walls of our alienation. The walls either we put up or the ones that are put up on us. What did Jesus do on the cross? Verse 15, it says he creates one new man, one new humanity. So what he's done has actually brought us together. Us as people in Christ, we've been brought together. We're no longer isolated individuals. We're together. There's a oneness between you and me if both of us are in Jesus. Verse 16, he says, he also reconciles us to God. We have peace with God when we deserved his wrath. Jesus has killed the hostility. But here's the thing. He's given us peace with each other. He's given all of us peace with God. But how did He do that? Because if I remember correctly, Jesus was the only one that died. Here it is. Jesus, on the cross, became the hostility. Jesus, on the cross, not only did He become it, He was made the hostility. And God killed Him for it. Now check what I'm saying. I'm not saying that He became hostile... He became the hostility. Much like um, Paul says in Second Corinthians 5.21, God, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't become sinful. He became sin and God treated him like it and he killed him for it. So here it is. God treated Jesus on the cross, legally speaking, as if he had done all the things that you and I have been doing to each other for centuries. That's it. And he killed him for it. So God in Christ literally slew hostility, he slayed it. That's not a word. Slew, slay, whatever. Past tense, present tense. Second thing is this, though. Look at verse uh, 15. Paul says this weird thing. He abolished the laws of commandments and ordinances. Now, that's weird, because if you remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, I don't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So who's right? Who's wrong? Um, well, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is clearly talking about what we call the moral law. He's talking about what uh, the law is how it directs us to live. This is the law that was written on our hearts when we were created, but the law that we rejected in the fall. Okay? Paul is primarily concerned with what we call the ceremonial law. Those That boring list of stuff that we read in the Old Testament that literally aided in separating Israel from the rest of the world. It was these sets of laws and ordinances that Israel were to follow. You know, the weird ones that people always bring up to us like not wearing mixed fabric, right? Those weird ones that we don't understand. These things that clearly separated Israel from the rest of the world. And he he doesn't just say the law. He says the law of commandments and ordinances. He's talking about rules and regulations, the material sacrifices, the circumcision, um, dietary regulations, all this stuff. Paul is concerned. He's thinking about how the law separates. Jesus has abolished the way that the law separates. The law separates in two ways, okay? How did Jesus do this? This is how Jesus did it. Jesus did... Anything and everything the law requires because we could not. Jesus did anything and everything the law requires because we could not. So it reconciles us to each other in that Jesus fulfills all those types and shadows, right? He fulfills the way that Israel worshipped, the fact that they had to have a temple, the fact that they had to kill animals. Every single time they went to worship, they had to kill an animal, right? In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews says that clearly was supposed to show them it was incomplete. It was clearly supposed to tell them that there was something more to come. Hebrews 10.4, the author says it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Right? There was something more that would come. Jesus also, that he fulfills the moral law, not abolishing it as the way of life. The, the moral law is still our way of life. Right? But he abolishes it as a way of salvation because we could never attain it through it. We could never attain salvation through the keeping of law. So that's the way that, the, that Jesus abolishes the law in fulfilling it. He takes away the law's condemnation until Jesus, all the law could do was condemn us. Because we're told that if you mess up on one dot of the law, you are completely sinful. That's all of us. So, Jesus comes and fulfills all of it through the last dot so that it can no longer condemn us. It's no coincidence that when Jesus dies, we're told in all of the Gospels that the veil in the temple was torn in two, meaning there was no more separation from God. There was nothing that could keep you from God now through Jesus. What is the primary work of Jesus in my life? It's this, to bring down walls and to kill hostility. The primary work of Jesus in my life is to bring down walls and to kill hostility. Verse 17, he says, He came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. All of us, because we all needed it. That's what Paul is saying. The first thing he says when he says... Blows you away. The first thing he says to his disciples when he appears to them in the room after the resurrection. The first words out of his mouth. Peace be with you. There's no more hostility. I've done what I came to do. You know Jesus has come into your life when you know that you have peace with God. And because you know you have peace with God, you actually take joy in seeking peace with other people. Even when you know how much they've hurt you. Even when you know how much they've betrayed you. Even when you know how unfair they're being. You know that you're right with God. And you know that you can seek peace with them. And that it's a reality. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, I've mentioned her before. Um, She wrote a book called uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was an unlikely convert because she was a self-avowed liberal feminist lesbian professor uh, at Syracuse, and she became a Christian. Um, In her book, it's amazing, she talks about her conversion experience, but one raw thing, she says that she became a part of this church, very conservative Orthodox church. She began dating this guy uh, that had a troubled history, uh, but was pursuing ministry. And they kind of clicked immediately because they both had really rough paths uh, and they actually got engaged. And some weeks before they were to get married, I mean, this is a woman that used to be a lesbian that's about to get married to a man. She's put her whole eggs in all, this, all these baskets, right? And the church was saying, no, you got to do this, you got to do this. The guy broke it off. Um, and he was pretty much never to be seen. He was never the same again, and he ended up uh, leaving the faith altogether. Uh, she was torn apart by that. She was torn apart because she had found a man that had found Jesus too, so she thought. Um, She was torn apart that this church that had taken care of her and witnessed to her and loved her despite her struggles had encouraged her to be in a relationship with a man that was unhealthy actually looking back on it for her to be in a relationship with. And as she was dealing with that in the year after, how you know, I thought I was a Christian, I thought these were the people of God, what was I supposed to do? She came to this conclusion, I think it's it's simple, but it's beautiful. She said this. I came to the realization... That people will betray you, but Jesus never will. She said, at that moment, I began to love that man once again. People will betray you, but Jesus never will. The whole point is there's no hostility between you and God and Christ. And because of that, everything in your life is going to be made whole. Quickly, the last one here. So then... So then, verses 19 through 22, uh, one commentator puts what Paul's saying like this. Paul is basically saying, we were Christless, stateless, friendless, godless, and hopeless. But in Christ, we've been reconciled. We now have complete and free access to God. We were once far off, but we've been brought near. So what now? See, the thing is, is we still look at this place called the church. And the church is a pretty messed up place. It's a very imperfect place. There's disunity. There's discord. There's segmentation. There's fragmentation. How are we supposed to make sense of this? Well, three things really quickly Paul says. He says, is that a picture that the gospel has failed? No. It means that there's more work for the gospel to do. And this is how he says it. He says, one, we are now fellow citizens. Fellow citizens of what? Well, it's something he said earlier. We're fellow citizens of a new humanity. The old humanity was dead in trespasses and sins in Adam, right? Our father. But our new humanity is alive and righteous in Christ. Because Christ, the second Adam, came and did what the first Adam failed to do. You think about being a citizen, right? The, the language here back then for Ephesus um, in, in a town like Ephesus you had, you had three options as far as your status of being in the bounds of that city you could be a stranger meaning you didn't belong there and you had no legal recognition of being there so you had no protection you could be an alien meaning you were officially recognized by the local government as not belonging there so you got a little protection because at least they knew you were there or you could be a citizen meaning you fully belonged you had full rights and full protections if we're citizens we're given we belong if we have this identity, it means we've given up the right to be identified by anything else. For citizens of this new humanity, now, it doesn't mean that we give up our distinctions. You know, in Galatians, Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That doesn't mean you lose your Jewishness or your Greekness or your maleness or your femaleness. It doesn't mean that those don't matter anymore. You don't lose your blackness or your whiteness or your whatever, whatever your cultural heritage is. You don't lose that. What it's saying is, Your identity now is Christ right? A guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this. I thought it was beautiful. We no longer live on a passport but we live really having birth certificates. We really do belong. We're citizens. Second thing he says is we're members of the household of God meaning no matter what you think how you feel if you're in Christ you're a child of God. Nobody can take that away from you. I think you know parenting's hard ask Carrie or me. Um get really frustrated with my kids but there's nothing that will ever take away the feeling when they walk in the door that they are mine and i love them just because they're mine even though they drive me crazy sometimes uh there was a guy uh, a historian who was not a christian in the early church who said uh, his name was lucian of Samosata. he said this about christians He said their founder Jesus Christ persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another, therefore they despise their own privacy and they view all their possessions as common property. That was weird back then. There was another historian that said, See how the Christians love one another. It was radical. Last thing is this a holy temple in the Lord we're being built together. Last thing he says we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul connects this new humanity created in Christ with the Old Testament structure, the temple. And this is what I want you to hear tonight. This is it. You are not alone. More than that, if you're in Christ, it's impossible it's utterly impossible for you to be alone. I don't know what you're going through tonight. I don't know what walls seem impassable to you. I don't know what walls seem to be crushing you. But in Christ, you are not alone. Because if you're in Christ, you are in the process of being built, joined together into a holy temple. Peter goes so far as to call us living stones. Being founded upon the cornerstone. I'll leave you with this story. Ernest Gordon was a POW in World War II under the Japanese um, he, in the Pacific. Um, he had to work with other POWs, a railroad called the Death Railroad. The conditions were so bad that one to 2,000 people died for every two miles of the highway that was built. One to 2,000 for every five miles. Um, in, the, in the book called Miracle on the River Kwai, this is an excerpt about the conditions. Y'all got to listen to this. Death was everywhere. And as conditions worsened, our lives became poisoned by selfishness, hate, and fear. Formerly, we had huddled together because of our fears, believing there was safety in numbers. We had still shown some consideration for one another. Now that was gone existence had become so miserable that nothing mattered except to survive we lived by the rule of the jungle the evolutionary law of survival of the fittest it was a case of I look out for myself and into hell with everyone else everybody was his own keeper and all the restraints of morality were gone but one afternoon something happened a shovel was missing at the end of the day the officer in charge was enraged. He demanded that the shovel be reproduced or else. And when no one volunteered that he, had been take, that, that he had taken the shovel, the officer took out his gun and threatened to kill everyone on the spot unless someone stepped forward. And then one man stepped forward. I took it, he said. The officer put away his gun and picked up a shovel, and he beat the man to death on the spot. But at the second tool check, this time, there was no shovel missing. There had been a miscount at the first check. The word spread like wildfire through the camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save everyone else. The incident had a huge effect. We began to treat each other like brothers. Death was still with us, no doubt about that. But we were slowly freed from its destructive grip. I love that. This is the thing. You and I were made for each other. We're made for the one who made us and we were made for each other And sin. Our own sin and the sin of others has destroyed and wreaks havoc on both of them. Every day we have things coming at us from all sides that seek to separate us from God and to separate us from each other. And often those things come from our own hearts. But the point Paul makes is Jesus has come to make whole what was broken. What's amazing is at the time Jesus, uh, Paul wrote this, uh, there was a huge temple in Ephesus, the temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Also, at the time that he wrote this, the temple, the Jewish temple, was still standing in Jerusalem, meaning that wall that he was talking about was still standing in Jerusalem. But the glaring point about both of those buildings is that they were both empty of the living God. Y'all, the church... The body, it's an imperfect place full of alienation, full of disunity and discord. The saying goes, and I think it's true, The America is still no more segregated than it is on Sunday mornings, right? It's because it's full of imperfect people. But you got to hear the beauty of what God says or what Paul says here that Jesus has done. Jesus has said, I am going to manifest myself most tangibly in the midst of... Of my people. So when we find disappointment, when we find betrayal, when we find brokenness in the church of all places, does that mean the gospel has failed? No, it just means there's more work for Jesus to do. And you better believe he's going to show up. Jesus says, I am going to manifest myself most tangibly in the midst of those people because I am building them up and I am the cornerstone. I am the strong foundation. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are those who often feel like we could be no further off from you. But you've given us this glorious, glorious promise that in Jesus, you've brought us near. Father, we don't know how to deal sometimes with our Alienation and from our separation, from our loneliness and our despair. We pray that these words would be true, that we would feel and see Jesus, and that you would actually use your people, the same people that we disappoint and the same people that disappoint us, that you would actually use them in our lives to show us yourself. You've promised to do that. Would the church, would your body, your people be a place where the world sees Jesus? Pray it in his name. Amen.